Good morning. Uh, let's go to the Word of God for our sustenance, for our joy. We're in John chapter 8. I'll be beginning in verse 31, and we'll read through verse 47. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But believe, but because I tell, you the, I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. Lord Jesus, we pray that the teaching of your word would have its full effect. Um, that we would have our eyes fixed on our Father, who is God, and we would be humbled before your word, um, and that it shows us both our faults and the hope that you give those who are faulty. So we ask your blessing on the preaching of your word and our understanding of it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so, uh, in the last paragraph that ended in verse 30, it told us that there were some who believed you can see that in chapter 8, verse 30. There are many, actually, it says, who believed in him. Now, Jesus has been drawing a line. He's been dividing between believers and unbelievers, and more importantly, between himself, son of God, son of man, sent from heaven, and his accusers, who find fault with him, men of earth, carnally minded, of the flesh. But as Jesus has been questioned and even insulted by these people who want to do him harm, there have been those who have believed. And, and we closed up last week with this realization that Jesus, Jesus uh, suffered in order to reveal the heart of God. Jesus' suffering is what reveals him to us. You know, it's in the breaking of the bread, which is his body, that our eyes are opened, as we see with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. The cross is where we see the love and the glory of God. Jesus is like the herbs that must be bruised in order to release their aroma. And now as Jesus is being taunted and insulted, and there are those who are seeing him now, um, as an enemy, there are also many who are seeing him as, as who he is, and then believing in him. And in verse 31, he turns to them now, and as you and I are believers, these are words that we ought to pay special attention to. Uh, this is to believers, and Jesus is going to tell them what it's going to take to make them disciples. And if you want to be called a disciple, then this is for you. Now, a heads up as we go, get through um, chapter 8, uh, a large section of chapter 8 here, the dialogue 
is confusing. Um, and here's why. In the previous verses, there were some angry Pharisees who were being mean to Jesus, and Jesus was answering them with wisdom and power. Then in verse 31, it says Jesus addresses the ones who believe in him. So he, he kind of turns from the Pharisees toward the other people and has this conversation. And then there's back and forth between Jesus and um, the Pharisees again. And it's hard to tell when that happens exactly. Uh, let, let me show you what I mean, and this will give you a helpful outline for the rest of the conversation. Uh, too. So in verse 31, it starts, Jesus said, and then Jesus says stuff. And verse 33, uh, 33 after the red letters and the black, letter, black letters are there again, uh, 33 says, they answered him. Well, who is they? It's either the believers in verse 33 or the Pharisees who've been talking to him for much longer since earlier in the chapter. Uh, verse 34, it says, Jesus answered them. And then he goes all the way to verse 39, where it says, they answered him. Uh, but again, who is they this time? It can be hard to tell, and it goes back and forth. But the people talking to Jesus definitely take a stab at his family when they say, we were not born of fornication, the implication being, implication being, you know, like you are. It's a rude reference to the rumors surrounding Jesus' birth. And by verse 48, you know, it says, then Jesus answered and said to, uh, or sorry, so then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, that's definitely not coming from those who believe in him. I don't think any believers believe that Jesus was possessed by the devil. That doesn't sound like believers. That sounds like the Pharisees, doesn't it? Well, I'm inclined to believe that the they uh, that we see in this conversation throughout this dialogue is still the Pharisees and the rulers of the Jews that Jesus has been talking to all the way since verse 12. And even before, back in, in chapter 7 and before. Um, since, in other words, I think the right way to picture the conversation unfolding is like this. Jesus is teaching. He's teaching those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who want to believe. He says things that are uh, extraordinary. Things like, I am the light of the world. And there are people who are happy to listen to him, willing to learn from him, even at the point of believing in him. And then the Pharisees show up. And the, the believers, or the, the almost believers, they're quiet. The loud people are the ones challenging Jesus, challenging his authority, just as they have been doing since chapter 5. And, and uh, the Pharisees and Jesus then go back and forth, back and forth. Jesus prophesies of his death, verse 28. He promises that then you'll see. And then many more in the, many in the crowd believe in him in verse 31, or verse 30, excuse me, which we saw. And then Jesus, at that point, sensing the faith from the people that he was initially trying to talk to before the Pharisees interrupted, he turns to them, to the humble hearers, and he says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And then when it says in verse 33, They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? This again, I think, is from the accusers, from the challengers, the arguers, the Pharisees, the leaders of the people. We never really hear from the believers. The believers are quiet. And maybe if that's the only lesson we get as believers, to be silent while Jesus is speaking, then this is worth it. Anyway, that's how I read it. But if the believers remain silent in this passage, that doesn't mean that they're not there. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't ministering to them. These words are for the believers, and they're good words. He says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. This is for us. This is for us. We're disciples. Um, this is for the rest of the world as well, as a call, as an invitation to those who would be disciples. Jesus will echo this thought in John 15, when he's just got the 12 in the upper room. He says, abide in me. 
The, the abide, the word abide means to make your home there. You think abode, that's like your home, your dwelling place. To abide is to make your abode somewhere. It's a set up camp. It's to make your home there. And some people have said it carries the idea of putting down roots, okay? Being connected through root and root and stem to the, the, the top of the tree to the bottom of the roots. You know, this is the, the phraseology that Jesus uses again in John 15 when he says, you know, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And just like the branches abide in the vine, so you abide in me. I like this. I like plants. Abide. Make yourself at home. Put down roots. Be connected to the stem. That's discipleship. What's a disciple? Now, a disciple, um, it's from the word discipline, um, which we've, you know, we've sort of uh, made up this word discipleship. That's a very Christian word, and it's good. I like it. I think it's a useful word, discipleship, uh, when we use disciple as a, or, you know, we, yeah, you use disciple as a verb. Um, I do it all the time. I think it's a helpful way of describing the spiritual growth of the Christian. But more accurately, the verb for the noun, disciple, is to discipline. And, and we think then, you know, of, of spanking and being grounded in timeouts. And there's something to that. Uh, it's probably why we don't use the word discipline, and instead we've replaced it with a, a shiny polished Christian word, to disciple. But a disciple is one who is putting themselves in the position to be corrected and guided. Now, Christians actually go back and forth as to whether it's possible to be a Christian and not a disciple. And some people talk about one being like a next level thing. Like you come to Christ in faith, but then, and if you've got endurance, you know, then you become a disciple. It's like a promotion and you grow. I don't think that's really a healthy way to think of this. Uh, it's true that to be a disciple is to be corrected and a disciple is on a path that it's, there's progressing and growing and maturing. And the scripture is clear that this is the life not just of, you know, a special elite group of Christians, but this is the life of every believer. This is a process of sanctification that every person who has ever placed their faith in Christ is invited to engage in, is expected to engage in. When you place your faith in Jesus, you become a disciple, and he takes ownership of you and then begins to correct. You know what I'm talking about. Now, you might not be a very good disciple. That's possible. That's a real possibility. Sometimes we read about those who are not very good disciples in the Bible, don't we? But they are corrected and led and guided and brought through to the end in spite of themselves. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For your rod, that's a corrective measure, and your staff, they comfort me. So Jesus says, you are my disciples. And that means Jesus has taken ownership of you and he has taken it on himself to teach you and to lead you and to correct you and guide you. How does he do this? You know, we talk about the great, big, painful ways of correction. We think, again, of, of discipline and spankings and things like that. And it's like, oh yeah, I've received some of those from God, you know. Uh, when I was going the wrong way, he corrected me and it was kind of painful. But that's not his first preferred method of discipleship. God's intention, uh, his, his preferred method for correcting his people is through his word. Okay? The word is profitable for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And he says that to be a true disciple, you put your roots down into his word. And his word will filter out and correct and guide. It will be the, the discipline that you need as a disciple. 
You know, you make your home in his word and that home has walls and it has boundaries and it corrects you when you try to get around them. Roots are both for where the plant gets its nourishment and its life and we, we receive that from the word. But roots are also what makes the plant stable. Without roots, they just become tumbleweed. And, and, and we, we want to be immovable in the soil of the word. To make your home in one place, it's to, it's to live there. You enjoy the space. You live, you move, you have your being in that space. But a home has to have walls. And, and it defines what is your space and what isn't your space. To abide in the word and to be a disciple is to live in the scriptures and allow them to correct your thinking and your living. Now that certainly means spending time at your new home the Word of God, to make your abode there. That's what it means to abide. You know, as you would spend time in your home, you spend time in Scripture. But it also has to let the Scriptures define your boundaries, just like walls of a house. Find out where the walls are. Put your roots down in the Scriptures. Draw forth spiritual nutrients from the soil of the Word of God. But also know that your roots are stabilizing you, and you're gripping onto that soil, and you can't just walk off to another part to get a drink of water from somewhere else. That... Your roots are securing you in the truth, making your footing secure, letting your foundations be strong, but that is, by necessity, a boundary, a limit. Now, all the questions that Jesus has been getting from the Pharisees and his enemies, they're questions that are trying to get him off balance. You know, make him insecure. So Jesus, he has this little aside, this parenthetical bit in the conversation to the believers, to those who would be disciples, telling them, make your home in my words and you'll be my disciples. You'll be trained, you'll be corrected and led and guided, but only as you allow my words to be your home and where your roots are. The Pharisees are trying to make Jesus look untrustworthy. If you say that about yourself and you can't be true, who, you know, we can't trust you. You say you're the light of the world, but you're just standing there talking about yourself. You're untrustworthy. You're not the truth. And Jesus says to these, these believers, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. This is the, the fruit of putting your roots down in the word of God. You'll know what's true. You'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus is obviously a target to people who want to trap him, right? To capture him in his words. But Jesus tells his followers, if you abide, if you make your home in my word, you'll never be a captive. You'll be at home. <laughs> you won't be a prisoner. You'll always be free. Now this is something some people don't like or refuse to understand, perhaps. Uh, we think we like the idea of freedom, but people think of freedom as freedom from responsibility and freedom from accountability and freedom from consequences for their own actions. And when we look at all the sins that look fun and then we want to be free to behave in any way that we want free to sin free to be selfish without repercussions and the scripture is clear that's not freedom verse 34 says it right there most assuredly i say to you whoever commits sin is a slave of sin in our sinful state we are prone to cast off whatever boundaries challenge our self-destructive tendencies but jesus says you want freedom abide put down roots Without boundaries of a home, you are free to be homeless. You know, without boundaries of roots, a plant is free to be dead, to be just a weed. Jesus says, abide, send down roots. That's where the freedom is. You know, I, I kind of picture, you know, an astronaut coming from out of space. There's not a lot of boundaries out there, right? It's just wide open space. But they come to that, you know, limiting um, uh, <laughs> boundary of our atmosphere and come down to the planet Earth, you know, this small speck in the galaxy, and get off that, you know, shuttle plane and, and kiss the ground. The, the place where we put down our roots. 
because they're free to be home. Something interesting has happened in our society in the last, I don't know, 100 years or so. I'd have to study it more to get a more accurate figure. But, uh, uh, you know, a person nowadays who has made it financially or whatever, and moving and someone who's moving up the social ladder is said to be upwardly mobile. And it is mobility, now the ability to move, to come and go as you please, that is seen as a goal. Um, and, you know, something in and of itself that has value that's worthy of being worked towards. We see it especially maybe um, in small towns like ours. I would imagine kids who grew up in North Fork don't really want to settle down in North Fork. Uh, they they want to get out, escape, and, and achieve mobility and a sign of wealth and success in our modern days whether a person can afford to move or not. Mobility is valued. It's freedom. I would suggest that it's become uh, valued, mobility has become valued at the price of stability. Because stability, while very, very valuable, is not valued in our society. Um, this is perhaps more of an issue of economics or sociology or something like that that I haven't studied, but I believe there are spiritual realities at play in this phenomenon. People don't commit to a church, to a ministry, uh, to a family. People are flighty. Mobility is sought after. And stability is really underrated. But the language Jesus uses in this passage, and later in John 15 is contrary to our modern way of thinking. He says, yes, put down roots in one spot, in my word. <laughs> Make a home for yourself here in my word. Settle in and let it stabilize you. This is very um, <laughs> counter uh, to the kind of spiritual and ideological buffet that people would rather have now which is I need to keep my options open and I'll move around either from church to church or even from religion to religion, picking the bits of spirituality that appeal to me at the time. That's tumbleweed. It's dead. There's no fruit. There's no flowers. Jesus says, settle in and, and let my words stabilize you. And of course, the arguers argue, and I think we don't hear from the believers here. They're silent, which may be a lesson in itself. But in verse 34, um... Oh, no, sorry, verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now, look, look at the touchy consciences here. First off, Jesus says to believers, The truth will set you free. Instead of saying, show me the truth, or what can I do now that I'm so free, apparently. They say, oh, we have always been free. I've never not been free. We are as free, of a, free as ever. We've never been anything except super free. So how can you make such a silly offer as to make us free? There's a lot of arrogance packed into this one verse. A lot of ignorance and a lot of arrogance. Now, how could they say we have never been in bondage to anyone? Now, when Jesus says you will be free, we know he's talking about spiritual freedom and ultimate freedom. He's not talking about a political freedom, but we, we also know that the Jews that he's talking to are taking things literally. They're taking things physically and not spiritually, which means their claim is all the more ridiculous. Israel has had its national identity taken from slavery and captivity and the deliverance from those things throughout its history. What do you think the 400 years of Egypt in Egypt was? Was that freedom? What about 70 years in Babylon? 
What about the Syrian and Assyrian invasion, Persian rule, Philistine impre Philistine oppression? What about right now? You know, when they're talking like this, and the Romans had come in, given them a puppet king named Herod, who no one liked, taken their high priest Annas and appointing Caiaphas as high priest instead. Okay, they no longer had a right to enforce their own laws. But now they say, we've always been free. Oh yeah, we're free. It's fine. We're very free. Really? <laughs> the pastor, uh, J.C. Ryle, he said, the power of self-deception in the unconverted man is infinite. Albert Einstein said it differently. He said, um, there's two things infinite in the world, human stupidity and the universe, and I'm not sure about the universe. Um, <laughs> I'm not calling them stupid here necessarily, but they are definitely blind, which is what Jesus says later in the passage. He says, why can't you hear my word? Because you're of your father, the devil, because you are not of God, because you, you are not, your heart is not turned towards your creator and humility. So of course, you're not going to understand what I have to say. Now, we really think we're okay until God shows us we're not. Well, the moment when you realized before you were saved or maybe in a, in, in a return to, uh, to Christ after a, a period of backsliding, the moment you realized, I am, I'm not okay, I need help, I can't do this, and I need salvation, I need the truth, I need the light because I'm in the dark, that was a grace of God on your soul. Part of God's grace to us is that He shows us how much we need Him, and we need Him to wake us up to our own depravity. But these people aren't there yet. They say, we're free, I'm fine. What they mean is that their flesh, their sinful nature, is unchecked by godly authority or boundaries. And to them, that makes them feel free. And even the beautiful gospel message that says you can be saved, this will grate on the sensibilities of the self-satisfied who don't want to believe they are in need of saving. Now, Jesus doesn't bring up the history of Egypt or Babylon or any of that, because, again, he's not talking about the temporal physical slavery. He's talking about the spiritual freedom and spiritual bondage um, that is affecting these people. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Okay, so he brings up abiding, and now he adds to that concept sonship um, and adoption. In God's design for humanity, family is very important. It shows up clearer, perhaps, in Eastern and Middle Eastern cultures uh, than in our modern West, and that's unfortunate for the West because God designed people to live in families. But families are a boundary. In the Old Testament, as you go through the laws and the consequences for breaking those laws, you will see that the most severe punishment is not imprisonment or death even. The most severe punishment is that a person would be cut off from among his people. Excommunication is the greatest punishment. And just as we saw when we studied verse 12, where Jesus said he is the light of the world, we saw that walking in the light brings fellowship. And it's clear throughout scripture that, the, that sin brings isolation. The gospel is focused on community. It's creating a new nation under Christ. A spiritual priesthood, a kingdom of priests. We are built up together as living stones, together as living stones, into a holy dwelling place for God in the Spirit. So Jesus picks up on this theme, saying that the one who commits sin becomes a slave. One who is outside the family, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. The Pharisees say that they're free, even when they lack the fellowship with God, they lacked sonship. 
and, and the inclusion in his house. And it was like they were—it was like they were a slave. That saying that they were free simply because they didn't have the same boundaries as the children of the master that the slave served. When, when he says a slave does not abide in the house forever, he's talking about the kind of slavery that was lawful in Israel. The Deuteronomy talks about it. it's very unlike the slavery that you might be thinking of. Uh, in a man, if a man had a debt that he could not pay, he could work to pay off that debt. That's slavery. He would become an indentured servant. But it was only for the amount of time needed to pay the debt. After three, five years, maybe more, you, you were free to go. But you're not in the family anymore. Free to go means you have to leave. But even if the debt was for a whole lot of money, there was still an expiration date for your service. In the Sabbath year, that's every seventh year, the slaves would go free. And the, the person they were serving would send them away with gifts, actually, and money, and livestock, and, and everything. It's pretty cool. But the point is, the slave doesn't remain in the house forever. They would be sent away after seven years. The son has to stay with his father, doesn't he? The son stays in the house. Now, who is more free, a slave or a son? Well, they're in the house together. They're eating the same food. They both have work to do, I'm sure, but one is sent away, and some would call that freedom. The prodigal son would call that freedom. While the son remains, he gains an inheritance and takes his father's business and maintains fellowship in the family. You know, after the time is spent, the slave is free to go. They paid their dues. But it's a far better thing to be free to stay. It's a far better thing to be free to be adopted as sons. Now, I don't know if you see the subtext, the reading between the lines here, between 35 and 36. The editors of the New King James kind of help you out a little. He has been telling the people that they would be free. And now he contrasts the slave, who's not free, and the son, who is free. And the word son in verse 35 is not capitalized. But in verse 36, he says, Therefore, if the son, capital S, the son, makes you free, you shall be free indeed. To be free is to be a son Jesus is hinting at the beautiful doctrine of, of his sonship, of course, but also at adoption, at our sonship. He's saying that the one who makes his home in Jesus' words, who sends down roots, will be one who joins a family, welcomed there by the only begotten, capital S, Son of God. Now remember how angry everyone was when he said, I'm God's son? Well, now he's getting really close to something that's going to make him even more upset. If you believe me, he's, he's saying, you will be sons of God, too. And that's freedom. Sons have boundaries, but it's, it's a freedom to stay. It's a freedom to not be homeless. Freedom is not only freedom from restrictions, that's to be an orphan, homeless, uprooted, and lonely. That's not the freedom Christ offers. He offers freedom within family, freedom to have a home with God as your father, freedom to take root in good soil. Now, they knew the family was important. That's kind of their culture's thing. That's why they claimed Abraham as their father. And Jesus is going to address that in the next verses. He's going to clear something else up that, doesn't, that, that they needed to know. Being descended from Abraham doesn't mean that you bear any family resemblance. Abraham is called the father of faith and the friend of God. And the way these people are acting, they don't look like they belong to that family, a family of faith and a family of friendship with the Lord. So verse 37, let's read this. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. 
Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Verse 41, You do the deeds of your father. Now pause there. And in verse 37, Jesus brings up a really touchy subject, and it's hard to imagine that this conversation is not escalating. Um, it's hard to imagine that this conversation would not be a little bit heated. Uh, he lays it out there plain and simple. You guys want to kill me. Are you crazy? And this is one place where they don't deny it. They don't deny that they're trying to kill him. They're thinking that's a great option right now. But the real topic that Jesus doubles down on here is family. He refers to his father and they say they don't need his father. The same sort of arrogance that we saw displayed when they say, we don't need your freedom. They say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus then draws a line, very important line of distinction. He says, if you are Abraham's children in truth, then you would do the works of Abraham. Now he's using his language very carefully. He's choosing his words. He said in verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. No one is arguing that. They could all trace their earthly lineage back to a guy named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And they're really proud of that. But they aren't really living according to the principles that their forefathers set forth. So when they say, Abraham is our father, while it's technically true in the physical, genetic sense, it's not true in a deeper spiritual sense. And that's where Jesus is always wanting to take the conversation. So when he says, if you are Abraham's children, he's saying you can be someone's descendant and not claim them for yourself. There's descendants, and then there's children. There's fathers, and then there's dads. Jesus is going to show them that it's possible to have a spiritual lineage as well as a natural one. And while their natural lineage goes back to Abraham, their spiritual lineage is completely satanic. Read on. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. I started in the wrong place. I didn't finish verse 41. They said to him, we, have n we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. So they're getting the spiritual sense of the conversation a little bit, but there's this rude statement that's saying they're not born of fornication um, because the, the rumor was that Jesus had been. But Jesus says, if God was your father. So they said, Abraham's our father. He says, if that was true, you do the works of Abraham. Now they say, if God... They say, God is our father, and he says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. If God were your father, like you say he is, you would love me. Now in verse 39, he says, if you were Abraham's children, spiritual children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now the big picture work of Abraham, you know, his, his main thing was faith. Romans calls him the father of faith. And he's called the friend of God. Faith results in fellowship, friendship. Jesus had said, has said again and again, you don't believe me, and that's the problem. Contrast that to Abraham, who believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Faith on one side, unbelief on the other. You can't claim allegiance to this camp if you're breaking all of their rules. You can't say you're a descendant of Abraham, you're a child of Abraham, if you do exactly the opposite of everything that Abraham does. 
Abraham receives heavenly messengers, these three men who aren't really men, it turns out. Three men on their way to destroy Sodom in the book of Genesis. They go to the edge of the valley overlooking Sodom, and two of these men, who are angels, go down to rescue Lot and his family, while the other man stays with Abraham. And if you read Genesis 18, where this passage shows up, Abraham, he intercedes for Sodom. And then while he's interceding and praying, you realize that the third heavenly messenger is addressed as, as God himself. He is a theophany, a humanoid representation of God. And we'll talk about a lot more of those next week, actually, when we finish up chapter 8. Abraham addresses him as the Lord himself, and Abraham receives God when he comes to visit him. Abraham received Jesus. These men do not receive Jesus. They're not doing the work of their father Abraham. Abraham may be in their family tree, but Abraham had the ability to listen to the word of God, and these men do not. And so Jesus tells them straight up, you are of your father, the devil. Now again, it's really hard to imagine this conversation happening in, in, in the same tone that I'm preaching in right now. You know, it's hard to imagine everyone talking in hushed tones with being calm, cool, and collected. He calls them the spawn of Satan. That's sort of a big deal. Now, to be fair, they started it. Uh, but, you know, you can remember, look back at verse 19, they said, where's your father? And then later they said, we don't, we're not born of him, uh, fornication, you know, implying like some people we know. Uh, they're the ones who first started, you know, insulting family. So now Jesus says, you want to talk about our dads? Really? Is that where this conversation is going to go? Okay, I know your parents never told you, but your real father is Lucifer. He's the devil. Uh, now, how can Jesus say this? Were they really descended from Satan? Well, just as natural-born children will resemble their natural parents, so spiritual children, the spiritual state of a person, will reflect their spiritual parentage. You resemble your mom and dad. Jesus is not telling them that Satan somehow created them. That's not the way it works. But rather that their behavior was not original. They lie and cheat and murder, just like the devil is a liar, a cheat, and a murderer. And there's a family resemblance there. Now, Paul will pick up this idea about spiritual parentage in Ephesians 5, 8 in more positive light. He says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Bear a resemblance to the things of the light. The Pharisees are still children of darkness. They bore resemblance to Satan, and Jesus lists the, the ways in which they do. They're liars. They are murderers. Both of these things that have already come up in the conversation. Not only are their questions dishonest, which is a kind of a lie, but they say we've never been a captive to anyone, which is a great big lie. And Jesus has already called them out on wanting to kill him, and they didn't challenge that. You know, these motives and these behaviors are evil and ultimately satanic. But people who you call satanic rarely take it, in, take it well, take it in stride. And these people are going to resort now to personal insults instead of taking up the actual argument. Uh, but we'll have to start with that next week. The text opened up with Jesus saying, If you are my disciples, then you'll make your home in my word. My word will be your stability and your nourishment. And then he introduces this doctrine of adoption, showing that it's far better to be a son than a slave. Why? Because a son stays. He's free to stay. He's stable. While a slave has to leave. And he, and he teaches us that it's possible to be a descendant from someone and still not bear the family resemblance. The whole passage, right up to these harsh words about their father being the devil, it's all about family. It's about home life. So this is where we need to end, and this is what we need to rest on. If God has adopted you as his son or daughter, then we ought to desire to make our home 
with him, to be rooted in his word. We see in these Pharisees that far too often remind us of ourselves what a, what a life would look like, um, what a life looks like when it, that sees freedom only as a freedom from responsibility and boundaries and consequences. That's not freedom. Jesus has given us freedom to stay with him, and that's free. That's freedom indeed. We are free to be in God's family. And as his family, we follow our Savior who said, I must be about my Father's business. We say we must be about our Father's business. We seek to be a part of God's family and dwelling in his house forever by taking on the family identity, by resembling our Father. This good work that he has begun in us, he will be faithful to complete. He has committed to his sons and his daughters. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. Uh, we love you. We glorify your name. God, I pray that your word in the Gospel of John would go forth and accomplish that which it was purposed to accomplish. We thank you for a place in your family. We thank you that you are working in us so that we will more and more and more resemble you. You're transforming us from glory to glory. We pray that we would be able, uh, we would have capacity to behold more and more of the glory of the Lord. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen.